Hi, this is Tom Field, Editorial Director with Information Security Media Group. The topic today is interpreting aliases on the OFAC list, and we're speaking with Jeff Vitale, AML Education Manager with Medavante Risk and Compliance Solutions. Jeff, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, Tom. Jeff, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your role at Medavante, and give us a sense of what types of organizations you work with on a daily basis. Sure. I manage the training to prevent anti-money laundering and also the training for the Metavante Prime Compliance Suite solutions. I'm responsible for basically heading up development and delivery of training services, but along with that I also develop AML training, uh, implementation procedures, and also other training-type programs. It also leads me into being a, um, uh, a consultant for different financial uh, services or uh, institutes. Mainly we work with uh, with banks and um, insurance companies, uh, but lately we've been seeing a little bit more of a uh, interest in our products from the non-financial institution sector, such as just regular corporations with the mandate to also uh, filter OFAC. So with all of that, I, I also design workflow designs, implementation, product usage evaluations, um, documentation development, and also solution and application design. So, Jeff, you and I have spoken a little bit offline. Give our listeners a sense of what some of the OFAC list challenges are right now for financial institutions. There are a couple that um, that everybody seems to be facing. Uh, the, the underlying one that's always been there from the beginning is the incomplete or the out-of-date information. This affects a, a, a lot of um, uh, what institutions have to deal with because they're expected to filter for information that's either incomplete or just not there. And an example of that it has to do with uh, the latest edition of the Iranian vessels, where uh, OFAC has issued a list of Iranian vessels, but at the same time says, this is not a complete list, and you should augment your interdiction software. So when you when you hear things like that, you kind of say, well, wait a minute, I'm, I'm required to legally filter against the OFAC list, but OFAC's saying they don't have all the information. So this is definitely a, a challenge for every institution. Uh, another uh, challenge that that institutions face is um, examiners. They're going above and beyond what uh, what the mandate of OFAC is. They're kind of utilizing the OFAC matching to increase awareness of the institution's risk and also utilizing the interdiction softwares to identify other types of risks, such as pets or other um, uh other lists, such as the BIS list or fraud and things like that. So by examiners expanding the uh, expectation of what the interdiction software should do also puts a burden or a challenge on the institution. And then, of course, there's always the fear of noncompliance, and there should always be a fear of noncompliance. But I think the fear has been escalated to a point that's sort of out of control. OFAC has recently presented at the IFSA conference indicating that um, people have this unfounded fear of non-compliance or that violations will get through when in, in factuality they've only issued maybe about a dozen fines for institutions blatantly not filing or filtering appropriately. But the majority of the violations that they they do handle or, or are aware of in the end, don't result in fines, but they do result in the institution taking some kind of uh, remedial action in order to try to ensure it doesn't happen again. 
So let's just talk about this a little bit, Jeff, because the, the ramifications are of interest to me. Let's say that a financial institution isn't in compliance or isn't filing appropriately. What does this mean for a financial institution? What are the challenges if they don't have their OFAC program down properly? Well, one, my, my whole thing with not complying with OFAC is that you're facilitating the uh, uh, funding of terrorist organizations or individuals that are uh, breaking the law. Um, so to me, that's that's one, but that's that's not a, a sort of a, a business requirement, right? You're not in business to help prevent uh, terrorists from from uh, getting their funding, although that's what we sort of do. Um, really what it is is that you need to make sure that you're um, uh, filtering correctly, that you're catching those things, because if you're not, you, you face closure of your business because you're non-compliant, massive fines that could also put you out of business or hurt your bottom line. You also face a, a major reputational risk. Uh, many institutions uh, may not be fined um, uh, with with anything in particular or a very small monetary fine. They might be slapped on the wrist, but when it gets out into the public and the public finds out that you facilitated the funding of a terrorist organization, that hurts your customer base and that some customers really will go someplace else to do their business. That makes sense. Jeff, what are some of the strategies and solutions that you recommend for financial institutions to stay in compliance? Well, I always recommend working with the vendor. Uh, most interdiction software vendors uh, do have some sort of service wrapped around their product to help you optimize the usage of that software. Um, I'm not going to say that I'm an expert on every possible interdiction software out there. There are many different flavors around the world that, uh, that do things differently. What's important is that uh, you understand how that particular solution that you've implemented works. Because if you don't understand how it's doing its matching, you won't be able to understand how to best optimize that. So you definitely need to have a close relationship with your vendor to understand these things. And also the expectation of your examiner is that you also have that intimate knowledge of how that interdiction software is working. Uh, the other thing is I, uh, I see a lot of places put up a lot of roadblocks when it comes to policies and procedures. You really need to make policies and procedures flexible so that way you can incorporate changes. The names on the list are dynamic. They're not, we set them today, and for the next year, it's going to, um, to be the same. You need to be able to say, okay, we evaluated it today. We needed to make a few adjustments. We incorporated those adjustments, and now are, we're tuned properly. But if the list changes, you need to evaluate the effect of that change to your matching. Now, most of the time, the changes do not affect your hit rate. Or if they do, it's very insignificant. But if you do have a massive increase for whatever reason, you need to be able to adjust that system. But many places, their policies and procedures prevent that type of adjustment, or that adjustment takes so long to get approval that it becomes ineffective. So you really need to be flexible with those things. And then the last thing is the vendors know the product best, and they will make recommendations to help your institution. What I recommend is that you act upon those recommendations. I have spoken with other um, vendors who provide interdiction software and services, and they say they face the same challenges. The, uh, the institutions ask them to come in, uh, evaluate, and recommend changes, and then they never implement those changes, so they never get from that inefficiency to a more efficient matching uh, process. 
So you've worked with a number of financial institutions. What are the types of results you've seen them realize from using some of these solutions and advice properly? Well, the, the first major result that anybody's trying to do whenever you're uh, uh, tuning your interdiction software is a reduction in your false positives. You really want every match to be a relevant match, something where you look at it and you say, yes, I need to investigate this one further. What you don't want is to go through a 100 matches where you say, nope, not a match, not a match, not a match, not a match, and you, it takes you a 100 of those to get to the one where you say, oh, got to investigate that one. So so typically with these types of things, you, you get to that point where um, you, you're looking at every case and almost every single case or match is something that you really do need to investigate further. Now, the uh, converse of that is when your examiner says, hey, you're just not doing this uh, to the level of satisfaction that I would like. And we'll talk about that a little bit, about examiners expanding beyond what, uh, what the intent of OFAC is. So they say you need to uh, match on more obscure names. And when you do that, you increase your false positives. But at the same time, the vendor could, one, help you tune that to, uh, to match what the examiner is looking for, but then also reduce a lot of that noise or, or the, just those clearly obvious false positives to try to get you back down to a level of, yes, you need to investigate each one of these matches. So, Jeff, one last question for you. As you know, you know, resources are tight for many institutions these days. When it comes to this type of interdiction software and solutions and strategies, how does a banking and security executive go about making a solid business case to invest in these solutions? Well, with making any business case, you're trying to determine what is the return on investment, and unfortunately, there truly is no return on investment here. There is just the uh, the, the idea that you're not going to have to pay out fines, and that's what you're really uh, what you're really trying to make the case for is that if we do these things, we won't have to pay millions of dollars in fines. So one is everything is uh, required by law as far as the OFAC matching. Everybody should be familiar with those uh, with that whole law. Uh, two, examiners will cite any kind of deficiencies. So what you don't want to do is wait until the examiner comes in and says, wow, you're way out of line with your, uh, with your matching. You really need to figure out how to make this stuff work better. And they're going to cite you for that, which means now you're going to have to throw resources at that. Uh, so it, it, it's better that you, uh, you have everything set up appropriately before they come in and, and hit you or cite you for that. Um, also, you want uh, less risk of a violation going through. One, we want to reduce the, uh, the funding of terrorist organizations or, uh, or drug dealers or any, any bad guy. And uh, we want to reduce the risk of the institution having to pay out for a fine and also reduce the risk of uh, uh, the reputation being tarnished by, uh, public, by the public finding out that you allowed a transaction to go through that should not have. You also will be more efficient, which will help require less personnel. So if you're able to uh, more efficiently tune your filtering engine and get through your matches quicker, you don't need to throw more bodies at it in order to handle the load. And then there's uh, uh, no or minimal fines that will come about with this because of your uh, your diligence in making sure everything's set up efficiently. Now. When I was saying that some examiners are blowing some things out of proportion as far as what OFAC is used for, and that they're they're trying to utilize it for more than just what it's uh, what OFAC's intent is. And the recommendation that I received from a compliance officer at OFAC 
is that when you run into a situation like that, you need to have a three-way talk. You need to uh, call OFAC and talk with a compliance officer there along with your examiner because sometimes the examiner doesn't have a full understanding of what it, what the OFAC intentions are. And so having a three-way conversation will help you get to something that's more reasonable as opposed to the examiner just saying, I expect this type of level of matching, and it's just not what OFAC is expecting. Jeff, there is one last question I wanted to ask you, because when you initially contacted me, you were talking about the challenge of aliases on the OFAC list. So I'd like to ask if there are a couple things about aliases that you really want financial institutions to know as they're going about dealing with their OFAC list. Yes, uh, one uh, one part of the aliases on the OFAC is that they're inconsistent. They they supply them throughout the list in an inconsistent manner. Uh, an example of that is on an uh, a non-individual or an entity, they might put the name of the entity and then in parentheses put or some other name. But then on an individual, they might actually list out the alternate first names of that individual as separate AKAs without the associated last name inside that particular component. So what this does in many interdiction softwares is say, okay, I need to match on just this first name. Well, how many thousands of customer records or transactions will that match against? It's just uh, unrealistic. So really, they, they recognize that there is a deficiency on their end, uh, but at the same time, you need to counter that deficiency by making sure that your interdiction software does have the, uh, the appropriate names to match against. Now, that's good advice, and I appreciate your time and your insight today, Jeff. It's been very helpful. Thank you. We've been talking with Jeff Vitale with Medavante Risk and Compliance Solutions. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tom Field. Thank you very much.